You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. In terms of U.S. elections, everybody always thinks, obviously, of the two main parties, Democrats and Republicans. Right. Because they get all the votes and the electors, mostly. But it's a legit third party. Oh, yeah. It's definitely legit. We have 50 state ballot access. We are the third largest political party. And we actually consider ourselves the second largest political party because at this point we believe that the Republicrats are basically one giant super party that pretends to have different factions. But really, there's so little daylight in terms of policy. You know, it, whether you vote Republican or Democrat, you're getting endless war. You're getting endless caging of people for victimless crimes. You're getting endless increased taxation. You're getting endless uh, increased debt spending. You're sort of getting this endless parade of poor central planning disguised as protection and help. And, you know, the only real viable alternative to that is the libertarian message that you own yourself, you own your life, you own your body, you own your labor and you own your property uh, and that we will stand alongside you and fight against anyone who would try to take those from you. So I, I actually, I mean, in terms of the issues, I think I lean very much on the libertarian side. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious, you know, what, what do you see as the differences between the four factions? Because I think part of the problem is 
is that sometimes the general population thinks the Libertarian Party is too much in the direction of, of, let's say, anarchy. But I'm just curious, how do you appeal to, like, a mainstream America? I have Vice President-elect Spike Cohen on the podcast. Spike, how's it going? It's going amazingly. I like being called Vice President-elect. It, 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 it denotes an inevitability of my being the next Vice President. I'm doing well. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Maybe you will be the next Vice President. So for, for those who don't know you, just in the past few days, you were nominated. You, you are the nominee for the Libertarian Party, which is essentially the largest third party. Yep. You were nominated to be the vice presidential candidate. And it kind of, well, there's so many different ways I want to approach this. We'll get to the, all the libertarian stuff in a second, mm -hmm. but you kind of came out of nowhere there and got the, I don't think the presidential nominee, Joe Jorgensen, I don't think she expected you to be the vice presidential nominee. Yeah, no, no one did. Uh, so uh, I guess give a little, little bit of a background around myself. Um, I uh, started a web design company in the late 90s when I was 16. And uh, I retired three years ago so that I could focus my life on my true passion, which is spreading the message of liberty to a public uh, who often hasn't heard of things like self-ownership, non-aggression, voluntary solutions, property rights, you know, the, the libertarian message. And so to that end, I became the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom, and the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media. And for the, the past three years, we have been doing just that. We've been spreading the message of liberty using entertainment. So it's been a, you know, primarily an entertainment-driven thing, podcasting and, and entertaining, stuff like that, and, uh, and have been spreading the message that way. Uh, back in November of last year, Vermin Supreme uh, reached out to me and asked me to be his running mate after I was on his show. And I said, well, this is the next logical conclusion. You know, we can we can now leverage a vice presidential run uh, to do the same thing, to spread the message of liberty uh, to the public. And so that's what we've been doing. And apparently I did a good job at it because uh, I'm the nominee. Yeah. And I, I want to uh, dive into your background a little bit. But but again, uh, it sounded like the, Joe Jorgensen, who, who got the presidential nomination, mm -hmm. I guess she was going for another candidate, but you edged him out at the end, yep, uh, yep. something like 533 delegates. To, people probably don't even realize there is a convention and a, a nominating process for the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party and VP candidate. Right. But you edged out the, you had more delegates than, um, is it Jason Mons? I forget. John, John Mons. John and Mons. He, and he's a very big figure. It was, this was an upset. So uh, in this race were uh, me, Larry Sharp, who's probably the most popular person in the Libertarian Party. And by the way, I, I've been on Larry Sharp's podcast, and I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Just okay. two seconds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, several years ago, somebody wrote an article saying I should run for governor of New York in the Libertarian Party, and I knew nothing about anything. And this guy calls me and said, uh, Larry Sharp, and he, he yeah. says, he says, hey, can we have lunch? I'm running for also for the, the governor's race in the Libertarian Party. I wasn't running at all. Just someone wrote this article. But he wrote to me. We got together for lunch. And he's like, do you really want to run? Blah, blah, blah. Like, is there some way we can work this out? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know. I got to talk to my people. Like, I kind of played it up. And like, ah, I won't run. You should run. And then so we became friends after that. I've been on his show. But I, for a brief moment, he was worried I was running and I flirted with it and someone wrote about it, but I never had any real intention of, of running. But that's my Larry Sharp story. One other story I'll just quickly say. 
the only other person I've ever interviewed from the Libertarian Party was also the VP nominee in a different election. It was the 1980 election. I was 12 years old and I spoke to David Koch. Oh, one wow. Of the, one of the Koch brothers who was running uh, for, as the VP nominee under Ed Clark in 1980. And I I, I I spoke. I interviewed him on the phone. I was 12 years old. It was probably the worst interview he ever did. But <laughs> now you're the second VP cat nominee for the Libertarian Party that I've ever interviewed. So that is, I'm in good company. I'm with with yes. uh, with uh, uh, David Koch and uh, and Coolio. Exactly. Yes. I'm in incredible Among company. Among the people here. I've interviewed, you're, you're Among all the people I've interviewed, when when you reached out to me and told me the people people you interviewed, the one that immediately stuck out to me was Coolio, and I'm like, how could I turn down an interview from someone who's interviewed Coolio? Like I, right. I can't, I can't do. Yeah. Like you Richard Branson it. wasn't so important, but Coolio. Richard Branson, I saw yeah. that afterwards. I'm like, oh, that's cool too. And I was like, Coolio, I have to take this interview. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Exactly. You got me. You son of a bitch. I'm in. So, so you're at the convention or you're, you're not at there physically, but right. the convention's happening. How do you, they, everybody voted for Joe already to be the presidential nominee. Right. Where, how did you come back from, from behind there? And was Vermin, was Vermin upset? Like what, what happened? So this was a very close race. So the dynamics of it are very weird. Uh, I was Vermin Supreme's running mate, but I had also been nominated by multiple caucuses outside of the core group that was supporting Vermin. So I was becoming sort of the unity candidate. I was, uh, uh, the, the four main caucuses in the Libertarian Party are the Radical Caucus, the Mises Caucus, the Pragmatic Caucus, or Pragmatist Caucus, and the Audacious Caucus. I had the Radical and Mises endorsement uh, I came closely in third, tied with uh, almost tied with Larry for the uh, pragmatic endorsement and the audacious endorsement. They were going to endorse me and then opted not to endorse anyone. Uh, but most of the audacious caucus people are actually in my campaign team. So I was a unity candidate uniting most of the factions uh, within the party. So and how I did actually, you become you, like, did you call everybody? Did you? I don't know. Was there a lot of backslapping and promises made, or like what uh, happened? No. So I've I've done a lot of delegate service, calling the delegates, but it's mostly my policies and the way that I message them. I am a right libertarian, but I am very friendly to left libertarians. I am a radical, but I'm very friendly to minarchists and to you know more pr pragmatic and and moderate elements within the party. Um, and so I'm uh, very much about party unity. And instead of trying to create a faction that was going to support me all, all the way to the end, I have actually been, you know, a unifying element, tried to be a unifying element within the party. So much so that in the nominating speeches uh, for the presidential candidates, one of our competitors, Jacob Hornberger, actually endorsed me for vice president right before I uh, uh, introduced Vermin Supreme at, to nominate him for president. And so, um, so I was very much a, a uniting candidate. Uh, and so coming into after Vermin lost, uh, we always said that, you know, we were going, uh, because of the nature of how things happen, that they pick the president and vice president separately. We always said that if one of us got our nomination and the other one did not, whichever one of us did would happily and humbly serve. And whichever one of us did not would enthusiastically, unreservedly support that ticket. And so when Vermin did lose, uh, you know, we, we talked about that and he said, you need to run, you know, we want to continue doing, you know, this next step in what we're doing. And so I did, I, I ran and I gave my speech, I gave the, I guess the speech of my life. And uh, gave a speech as to you know what my vision was to continue using a, an empathetic, engaging, and dynamic way of presenting the libertarian message to a, a public that uh, is often scared of such ideas because they've been conditioned to be so. 
and to use uh, my skills that I've learned over the last uh, 20 plus years uh, in uh, in presenting ourselves as uh, empathetic and caring and, and trustworthy people who are actually listening to people's concerns and then presenting our solutions, the libertarian solution of, of self-ownership and, and voluntary solutions and property rights and non-aggression and all of that. And uh, it sold on the delegates. I uh, I got I was in the first round. I was forty to thirty, forty percent to thirty uh, percent. And then after people started dropping out, one of the other ones endorsed me, and uh, so I ended up winning. I think fifty-two point something percent to whatever whatever the remainder percent of that was. I mean, I like given that Vermin Supreme, the presidential candidate you were running with, mm -hmm. is sort of a parodist, and it almost seemed, you know you it's hard to tell in cases like that whether his running is more of a, 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 whether they take it seriously or humorously, mm -hmm. did people have, have to overcome that when trusting you as a serious candidate for vice president? No, because by that point, we had made it very clear that Vermin was serious, that satire, as he has always used, satire is a means of him spreading a very radical political message. Uh, Vermin and I are both anarchists. Incidentally, I'm also, I've also made history. I'm not only the first professed anarchist to be on a major party presidential ticket, I'm also the first millennial uh, to be on a major party presidential ticket. Um, but no, by the time we were there at the convention, we had made it clear and everyone was under, the, whether they liked Vermin's, uh, you know, what we were presenting as Vermin's style of, of campaigning or not, uh, whether they had another candidate they liked better or whether they preferred him, there was really no question at that point that Vermin was serious, that this was a serious campaign and that we had a serious uh, strategy for doing our messaging. In fact, uh, the previous month in April, the Libertarian Party hosted a presidential recruitment competition where they basically gave each of us a, a, a unique code and had each presidential candidate try to recruit new members to the party. Uh, we won that competition with nearly twice as many uh, recruits to the party as every other candidate combined. So we had made it clear that we were serious, that we were about growing the party and spreading the message. And, you know, he, he, he made it to the final round. Um, so, you know, that's an important thing. Uh, we, we definitely, we came in with a lot of people thinking we were a total joke and we ended up going all the way to the final round and I ended up winning as VP. So no, by the time it was, by the time we were there, we, we faced a lot of uphill, you know, on the way there with people thinking we were a joke and we weren't taking it seriously and so forth. But by the time we were there, people realized we were, we were serious about this. Yeah. And, and just to mention in, in terms of U.S. elections, everybody always thinks, obviously, of the two main parties, Democrats and Republicans, right? because they get all the votes and the electors, mostly. But uh, Libertarian Party has consistently been the most active third party over the past 50 years. Like, I think even mm -hmm. in, I think even in 1972, there was one, that was, a, it was Nixon versus McGovern, mm -hmm. and um, one of the Nixon electors and this may or may not be a problem of the Electoral College, but one of the Nixon electors bailed on Nixon and actually voted for the Libertarian candidate. So I think right. I think that was the last time uh, a third party got an uh, elector in the Electoral College. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's the case. Because I don't think Perot or John Anderson in 1980 got electors at all. But it's a legit third party. Oh yeah, it's definitely legit. We have 50 state ballot access. We are the third largest political party. And we actually consider ourselves the second largest political party because at this point we believe that the Republicrats are basically one giant super party that pretends to have different factions, but really there's so little daylight in terms of policy. You know, it, whether you vote Republican or Democrat, you're getting endless war, you're getting endless caging of people for victimless crimes, you're getting endless increased taxation, you're getting endless uh, increased debt spending, you're, you're sort of getting this endless parade of poor central planning uh, disguised as protection and, and help. 
And, uh, and, you know, the only real viable alternative to that is the libertarian message that you own yourself, you own your life, you own your body, you own your labor, and you own your property, uh, and that we will stand alongside you and fight against anyone who would try to take those from you. So, so I, I actually, I mean, in terms of the issues, I think I lean very much on the libertarian side. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you know, what, what do you see as the differences between the four factions? Because I think part of the problem is, is that sometimes the general population thinks the libertarian party is too much in the direction of, of let's say anarchy or too right wing when that's not the case at all really um but and i do want to go over the individual issues but i'm just curious like how do you how do you appeal to like a mainstream america well, I think at this point, uh, the ball's really in our court, and it's kind of ours to lose. You look at the dystopia that we're in right now, where a virus, we're in a viral pandemic that is largely the cause of the fact that when it first came here, the federal government told medical professionals that they could not test people for COVID-19 for like the first like six to eight weeks that it was here when medical professionals uh, were told that, you know, uh, there were CDC regulations that said that if you wanted to test for a novel virus, a new virus, you had to go through this Byzantine process of application and it took anywhere from four to six months before you could do it. And uh, obviously by that time, we'd all have it. It would already be far, far flung. So thankfully, uh, there were some doctors like Dr. Helen Chu in the University of Washington in Seattle who illegally tested for it. They created the test kits, which apparently are easy to do if you if you know how to do such a thing. And they created the kits when people were coming in saying, hey, I was I was in Wuhan, China, and I'm feeling sick. And, you know, it sounds like I might have that thing I'm hearing about on the news. And they tested them. And sure enough, a lot of them, some of them were coming back uh, positive. So they went and told the CDC that. The CDC's initial response to that was great destroy all of those test kits and tell no one, including the people who tested positive. That was the federal government. Why would they say that? Because that's what it said on the magic regulation that they were reading off from. These are medical professionals in the CDC telling other medical professionals, well, uh, it says here on the sheet of paper, you got to get an application first. And so they told them, destroy the results, they're illegal. Thankfully, again, in another act of civil disobedience, these doctors said, no, my Hippocratic oath matters more than whatever that stupid regulation is, and so I'm going to illegally release this to the public. All of this to say that the reason we are in this situation now is because of bad central planning, because the Republicrats have imposed these ridiculous diktat on us that says that, you know, because some crony has given us a law that we've signed and then we hand it off to, you know, the president to enforce and create these massive regulatory, uh, you know, bureaucracies that create the most stupid arbitrary rules, we're going to basically put a gigantic boot on the neck of the people who are trying to actually solve problems like viral pandemics. And because this thing could not be contained, now you have states overcorrecting by telling everyone, stay home and don't go anywhere unless you absolutely have to. And of course, the only things that we're going to leave open happen to be all of the big box stores that happen to also be our largest donors. Don't you dare go to a small business. That's dangerous. Everyone go to Walmart or Target instead or buy stuff on Amazon. Uh, Let me ask you this, because you bring up a great point that I don't understand about these lockdowns. It's it's sort of like on a tangent. But when I walk, I'm in New York City. When I walk outside, you know, I see furniture stores, for instance, closed. And I think to myself, furniture stores are not really the problem for social distancing. Like I've never seen more than one person at a time in the store that's at the bottom of my building. And that could have been, you could have done this, even if you were serious about an economic lockdown, which, which I don't think should have happened. But even if you know, you're very serious about it. Yeah, yeah. You still could have done case by case and said, okay, this luggage store 
doesn't need to be closed down. There's no social distancing issues. If you're going to open the grocery store, you might as well open the luggage store and the flower store and the furniture store and the shoe store. Most stores, yeah, actually. Yeah, most maybe stores you, were... Yeah. Maybe, if you're really serious about social distancing, maybe you keep some restaurants closed. I don't know. But it's just ridiculous what's happened. But again, what's the difference between, like, let's say, the anarchists, which I think people are worried about, and let's say the pragmatic uh, caucus? So, for example, so all of us believe the same thing. And you could, I mean, to have a subject on differences between libertarians, you could do a multi-part series in this. We could talk for 10 hours about it. The long story short is all libertarians believe in a concept of self-ownership. And all of that is, all of our beliefs are derived from the concept of rights that come from self-ownership. If you own yourself, you own your body, you own your life. Uh, you own your labor and you own the product of your labor, which is your property. And if anyone uh, takes from you, takes any of those things from you uh, without your consent, that is an act of aggression. And so we believe in non-aggression. We believe that uh, I should own the things that I own as uh, by virtue of my existence, and you should own that too. And we should only operate uh, uh, voluntarily. Where the differences lie is, for example, pragmatists or minarchists, people who believe in a minimal government, will say that well, we do still need some central planning. We need some uh, a minimal level of government in order to be able to protect our rights. That we need some kind of arbitrator, a central arbitrator who determines and 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 you know determines our, our rights, our, our life, and our, our body and our and our property and so forth, and 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 acts as an arbiter between us and acts as an enforcer of those rights. Um, whereas an anarchist believes that we believe that the government is the greatest single infringer upon our rights and the greatest single aggressor upon our rights. It can only exist through taxation and through law and through diktat. And so as a result of that, uh, it, there is no way to have a government that isn't in and of itself the greatest monopoly, the greatest in, uh, you know, aggressor against our self-ownership. Uh, so that's a that's if I had to give the you know two minute version of the difference between us, that would be it. And then there's different camps that have grown up over time based on uh, specifics of policy, specifics of economic policy. So like the Mises caucus, we're we're Austrian e economics, and you know the radicals tend to they also tend to be Austrians, but they tend to be different in their approach. Audacious are the uh, libertarian socialists. Uh, and the, uh, not all of them are, but most of them are. And then the pragmatists tend to be the constitutionalists, the minarchists, the people who just want us to present a more uh, traditional way of, of presenting ourselves. Well, how would you describe uh, the Mises side, the economic side? So uh, Austrian economics is based on the uh, teachings of Ludwig von Mises and then further out uh, people like uh, uh, Nock and uh, Roth, uh, Rothbard and others who uh, basically the, the, the central premise around Austrian economics. And again, this is another one we could do a multi-part series on, but the basic premise is that all the other schools of economic thought are wrong. Uh, ec economics isn't something that you can put in a, 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 a formula. I can't make a formula to determine what kind of economic decisions you're going to make. And that that's why most economics like Keynesianism or the Chicago school, why they fail uh, is because they're based on thinking that people can be plugged into some kind of, you know, uh, formula or program and you can figure out what's going to happen. Uh, whereas the Mises or Mises, where the Austrians tend to believe that economics is more a study of human action. Uh, basically uh, more of an emotional intelligence type of, of, of study in terms of figuring out 
what do we think people are going to do? And so they have the six central uh, uh, central premises and things like that. And there's there's many different parts about it that I'm not going to bore you with, but that's sort of the key thing there. And so the Mises Caucus is built on specifically Austrian economics, so ideas like sound money, private property rights, and, and things like that. And so, and I, I'm actually I'm a member of the Mises Caucus, and I am an Austrian. Uh, I, I tend to agree with the Austrian school of thought on on economics as well. So I'm going to ask you more about that in a second, because I want to get into how we've been dealing with this economic shutdown and then just in general, you know, stimulus packages like what happened recently, what happened in 2009, what's happened in after 9-11 and so on. But just in terms of, of your background first, like you, you started a web design company when you were 16. Where, where did you start it? I started at my house. I mean, so my where, whole- Where was your house? Where, where do you live? Oh, I li- oh, I'm sorry. I live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Okay. And, uh, and basically the way it worked was, uh, my parents used to have me work during the summers, um, doing odd stuff. So like I, uh, you know, this big tourist town. So I used to do like, um, bussing tables and washing dishes. And, uh, one summer I did uh, landscaping and I learned something very powerful then I didn't want to work for anyone else. Uh, I saw at 14, 15, 16 doing stuff for other people and not wanting to get bossed around. And then I saw people who were twice my age in some cases, sometimes even older, doing the same thing I was doing, being bossed around by people who were younger than them. Mm. And I thought, ooh, I want to be the, the one telling people what to do. I don't want to be the one telling, you know, being told what to do. And so at 16, I was told basically you need to start either looking towards, you know, going to college uh, or towards getting a, you know, getting a career, not just a job, but like an actual career. Uh, because we expect you to, you know, not just, you know, just get some regular job. And so uh, I really did not want to go to college. I hated school. Good for you. And uh, yeah, I hated, hated school. I kind of want to say I saw that coming. I'm like, so you get a bunch of loans and you go to school for four to eight years and then you get to work four to eight years later saddled with debt. I, so, I mean, I was kind of, and I, I don't want to pretend that I, you know, was some kind of, you know, Nostradamus about that, but I, I kind of saw, I was like, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. So what I did was I basically, typical libertarian, I looked for a career that was disruptive. It was new. It was something that was not, I mean, this was 1998, 1999, something that people weren't really doing yet, but was obviously something that was going to be the future, uh, something that I could do from home, something that people would assume that I was good at, even though I was like a kid, uh, and also something that didn't require any kind of additional degrees, diplomas, licensing, anything like that. And that led me to web design. And so I, uh, I uh, actually sat under some people who showed me the basics of web design. Then I went on to different forums and stuff, learned how to do it, got the software. Uh, and by software, originally it was a text editor and an FTP program uh, and uh, you know a, a basic version of, uh, I think, Photoshop or whatever. And I went to town. I started making sites. I started by offering free sites to people. I would say, hey, you want a website? And they go, what's a website? And I, or you would say, why would I need a website? And I'd say, well, it's this thing and it can bring people into your business and and so forth. And, but it's free. It's a free thing. You want it? And they'd say, sure. So I'd make a free website that, you know, I made some crappy websites, but they were free. And I, I, I worked my way up until eventually I was making a decent product and people were starting to say, oh yeah, I think I need one of these website things for my business. Uh, Cause I was primarily marketing to local small businesses. And, uh, and as that worked its way up, eventually I could start charging little bits of money. And uh, I had the benefit of, I was a kid living with my parents. And uh, and over time, I eventually reached a point where I could charge something close to market value. And it eventually grew into an actual, an actual business where I had, you know, 
uh, I wasn't even the one doing the working any, any, anymore, uh, you know, the, the last, uh, let's say five, 10 years. So, so, so it's funny. I was, I, in the nineties, I also had a web design business. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and, and I was developing websites for a big, like I did American express.com, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. but, but I went, I made the mistake of going to college and then graduate school. <laughs> And then starting it, and you and I ended up basically at the same spot at the same time. And same and time. and I'm, you know, I'm I was a kid, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So you're better than me, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so then you did that, and I guess you sold it, or what happened? Yeah. I so I just I I retired. So an interesting thing happened to me. I was diagnosed with MS. My right side of my body went numb in 2014. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And we went through all the stuff, and I I did some googling, and I thought, guys, I. I think I have MS. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's too soon to tell. And I said, no, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I have MS. And so they finally gave me an MRI and they said, you might have MS, but we're not sure yet. And I said, I definitely have MS, but thank you for, you know, for your hope. Two years later, I finally had my, my second relapse. And I went, guys, I'm starting to think I have MS here. And they, they, so finally they said to me, you, you definitely have MS. And what does that mean? Like what, what does, what, what is MS? Okay. So multiple sclerosis is basically an autoimmune disease where your immune system thinks that your brain and spinal cord are the enemy. And so it will occasionally, things will trigger it and cause it to attack your immune system or, or your immune system to attack your brain and neck. And so the symptoms very, very wildly because it's your brain and, and spinal cord. It can affect everything. So, uh, you know, mine stuff tends to be more sensory things and I have some, some weakness issues and things like that. But thankfully my, uh, MS has been stable, uh, for pretty much since they, uh, you know, identified it and put me on a treatment, got onto a good, uh, uh, uh eating plan and wellness plan. I've lost about hundred pounds. Um, but one of the big things was stress. They said stress can trigger this. I was incredibly stressed out. I was making good money, but I was I would felt you know uh, rudderless. What am I doing other than just making a bunch of money? And I really had to have a moment with myself and think, where do I want to go with my life? Considering that you know MS typically doesn't make you live a shorter lifespan, but it does make your quality of life potentially shorter if you can't if you can't stabilize it. Which again, thankfully, it's been stable. Uh, but, you know, with that in mind, and then it really made me question my home mortality. You know, I may only have 40 years left, even if everything's fine. And, and you know, what do I want to do in that time? I'm already in my 30s. What do I want to do? And I kept going back to, you know, what, you know, your school guidance counselor says, what would you do if you didn't, if money wasn't a, an object? And I was in a situation where I wouldn't say money's not an object, but I could start making decisions that weren't based on my long-term finances. And I thought, the thing I want to do is talk about liberty to people. That's what matters to me. And so I made a decision to focus, to pivot into now doing, uh, uh, you know, doing the messaging full time. I actually took it about almost a year off of just really like rediscovering. I, I got into like, you know, meditation and, you know, healthy eating, everything I'd never done in my life. I would have made fun of myself for being that way, learned mindfulness and stoicism and all this stuff. And like, got really into like, you know, learning how to, you know, disengage from things and have a more balanced approach to life and all of the, you know, Taoism and all this stuff. But then after I did that and I was in a much better place and I was stable and everything, I thought now I want to get into this. And so I started doing the podcasting. I started doing the messaging and not just doing it as like sort of a casual thing I did with people or on Facebook or whatever, but as an actual, like a path with the idea that I wasn't worried about making money. I was worried about spreading the message of Liberty. And, and were you able to, how were you able to exit the, the business so that, that you were able to transition into this? 
I, I sold off client list. I, 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 you know, I didn't have like some, you know, IPO or anything like that. It was, it was, it was, I had done well enough money wise that between that and selling off client lists that I'm, I'm now in a situation with, with a fairly fixed income. I, I, I don't have to worry about working. And so that's the situation I'm in. That, that's great. So, so then, um, okay. So you start getting involved in, you know, the, the libertarian party, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so let, let me, so now this is back to the, the issues. What, what do you think is actually the role of government? Like, is there a role to protect pe- people who are, let's say, too weak to protect themselves? Is there any role at all? Or wh- what do you see as the role? I, so personally, my, my position on the role of government is that government is an institution that has proven itself unfit to exist. So the question then becomes, well, what about helping the poor? What about helping you know, well, who's going to, you know, the thing we like to make fun of is people saying, well, who's going to pave the roads or something like that. But, but these are questions. These are normal questions. Who's going to do the roads? Who's going to do, you know, police and firefighters and things like that. Libertarians believe that there are one of two ways that you can receive services. One is through competing providers who will basically trip over each other to try to give you the best service possible for your money. Uh, and the other way to get it is from a monopoly, uh, who, doesn't really have to give you a great service because they're the only ones in town and they know it and you know it and they know that you know it. And so they give you whatever whatever they decide to give you. Government is a violent monopoly that is financed by theft and enforced with threats of kidnapping and murder. And so given that and given the fact that using their own precepts about uh, about contract law, their own charters prove them unfit to exist. We consented to nothing. We signed nothing. Uh, they say, oh, you consented by being born here. Well, show me any other situation in contract law where you can say that a child who was never shown any contract is able to consent at the moment of birth to something that they never would have otherwise agreed to. But I, I think, though, like this is where people get nervous about libertarians. When, right. when, when, when you basically say, you know, the government takes everything by theft and murder. Right. It's it's that's not the common conception of government. Even of if, even if most people hate the government, which I think most people kind of do, mm-hmm. hate either all or some of the government. Uh, uh, you know, so how would you explain basically what government should do? Because some people do need help sometimes, like, or or maybe not. I don't know. Well, so here's what I have to say about that. If you look at the causes of poverty. And I've gone on door knocking tours and housing projects. I've gone to uh, college campus tours, talking to students who often are also in, in, in levels of destitution because you know they've got massive amounts of debt. They're working a part-time job. They have very, very little money. They're doing everything they can to scrape and scrounge to survive. Talking to them, what I kept, when I would talk to them about what their issues was, it kept going back to issues of central planning. So for example, when you look at people that are in poverty, what's the best way to get out of poverty? to find something to do to make money. Well, if you are trying to, for example, do a business, you want to cut the lawns, you want to cut people's hair, you want to do makeup, you want to braid hair, you want to do food service, you want to be a handyman, you want to do plumbing, you want to do electrical work or anything like that. In order to get into those businesses, depending on where you are, you have to spend thousands or even tens of thousands, or depending on the business, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, not to learn how to do it, not to get a business, you know, a, a storefront or anything like that, not to do marketing, but simply to get the government's permission to allow you to do that thing. That is a criminalization of poverty. They are telling poor people, if you want to get a leg up in life, tough, you're poor, suck it up.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. They are telling poor people, if you want to get a leg up in life, tough, you're poor, suck it up. I think, I think a lot of people don't realize this, that if you basically want to work at a nail salon in Alabama, yep. it's like you said, you need a license. And then if you move to Florida, the Florida government whole will say, thing. Yeah. listen, I don't know how they do it in Alabama, but we do nails very differently here in Florida. You need to get your whole license again in Florida, which is, you're right, it, that it, the whole licensing is ridiculous. And I would take that all the way up to the level of lawyer or then people think you're crazy. If you say doctor, I would take it to there, but, uh, like lawyers, it's crazy to me that you need to go to a three-year law school, take the bar exam. And by the way, then you practice law using nothing that you've learned in law school. Well, and you need to have a level of mastery, right? And again, there's difference between food service and being a doctor, but here's what I would say to the students that I would talk to who are talking about, you know, they're running up five and six figures of student debt. They don't even know if they're going to be able to get a job in their chosen field of work. And I would say, well, let me ask you something. What if instead of this, you had a system of apprenticeship or uh, internship in the in the field of work that you want to work in, where you could work directly under people who are already doing what you're doing professionally, learn under them, work with them as they see fit until you have, and you know, you're, you're either doing it for free or for a small stipend, but you're not running up massive amounts of debt and you're probably not taking four to eight years to do it. And you're working directly under them and you are learning the craft from the people that are doing it. And you're learning the newest of everything because you're learning it from the people that are professionally doing this until you reach a standard within the people uh, that are in that profession, that you have reached the consensus standard of mastery, that you can now do it professionally yourself, either under them or doing it your own way or whatever else. And they'd say, that's terrific. I'd love to do it that way, but I can't. And I'd say, but why? And they'd say, well, because I have to go to college. And I'd say, but why? And they say, because I need that degree. And I'd say, yeah, but why? And usually they wouldn't have to go much further because then they'd have to say, well, because I got to get the license. The government has arbitrarily decided that in order for you to be able to work in a chosen field, you have to do it their way, which has nothing to do with the way that people in that actual field of work would otherwise choose to do. It is a bad arbitrary decision that does not allow people to work their way up the economic ladder unless they have some kind of tremendous vertical leap to get up to the, you know, rung number 85 of the ladder because all the other rungs have been removed. Here's the next problem with, with specifically the question of poverty. Did you know that in most cities it's illegal to feed people without a license? Uh, I, I guess like restaurants, you need a license. If you go out to a, a to Central Park and start handing off uh, food to homeless people, the police will come and tell you to stop. And not just in New York, Wilmington, North Carolina, right up the road. We were actually planning before these, these lockdowns where, you know, right now it's not really safe to be doing something like that. But we were actually planning to get arrested, go to Wilmington, announce to everyone we are about to illegally feed the homeless and come on out and watch us. If you'd like to help, that's great too. And go out there and feed homeless people and live stream the whole thing. And when the police come and say, uh, please stop feeding the homeless, some of us would stop because I don't, you know, some people don't want to get arrested. That's fine. And we would say, okay, you can stop and you can record us continuing to feed the homeless in front of the police and ask the police, hey, would you like something to hear? You seem look like you could use a sandwich. Here's a sandwich. And we're going to give a sandwich to the homeless too. Would you like to help us give sandwiches to the homeless? And to make a point of saying, we are trying to feed people, which we are told that without government, people will starve to death. And yet here we are trying to feed people that have been put in that situation often because of the arbitrary centrally planned diktat of government. And yet when we try to help them, 
uh, with charity and mutual aid, we are told, no, you have to go to jail or you have to stop doing this. We're now going to uh, impose a penalty on you. We're now going to arrest you and put you in a cage and give you a fine and rob you for trying to help people. So when people say, without government, who would help the poor? My answer is we will, and there won't be a government to create poverty or to stop us from helping those who will still be poor. You know, it's interesting because I was wondering when these lockdowns happened and there's so many so many small businesses, local businesses that shut down and the employees set up these GoFundMes mm -hmm. and, you know, people were donating to them, but it still wasn't sufficient. Not Less people donated to them because there was always the government saying, hey, don't worry, we'll take care of it all. We'll do these $1,200. Yeah. Yep. Do you think if, do you think if the government didn't do that, do you think people would have gathered together as a community or the, the, uh, would have helped the employees more? I think there would have been more of that, but more importantly, the less government involvement you have, the less of that problem there would have been to, to, to begin with. We could have an entire multi-part segment talking about the Federal Reserve and why that's created poverty. Did you know your dollar, your Federal Reserve note, is worth something like two cents on what a Federal Reserve note was worth in 1913? We take, you know, they say there's, uh, the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. Well, add inflation to that because for at least as long as they've been measuring it, pretty much since the Federal Reserve came about, the cost of living continuously goes up. You know, we hope it only goes up 2% this year. And oh my gosh, it went up 8% this year, but we always, it always goes up. Why? Because the currency that you are required to use is centrally, it is printed out by the government. You're not allowed to use other currencies, not for important things like banking and, and, uh, and, and paying taxes and things like that. And as a result, they have a monopoly on that, which means they can print out endless amounts of money that they lend to themselves, that they then use for political purposes, and you get saddled with the debt. And because they are constantly printing out more money without creating additional value to go with that money, every single one of those dollars becomes continuously, steadily, slowly worth less all the time. And that's what happens. Your money is worth constantly on in an insidious way it is constantly worth less and so imagine if a dollar went the same now as it did in 1913 or even better imagine if there were competing currencies in a free market system of banking that wanted you to use their currency because they get a piece of it every time you use it and as a result they try to find ways to have it have more value so that the cost of living even goes down or at least doesn't go up Imagine a situation like that. All you need is for your money not to be issued by politicians who don't give a crap about the value of your money, but are more interested in leveraging your use of it and the, the subsequent value that comes from that to endlessly print trillions of it that they can spend for their own political purposes. Right. So let me, I'll, I'll play the slight Keynesian devil's advocate mm -hmm. that, you know, mild inflation um, allows people who are innovating in Silicon Valley, for instance, which there's certainly been a lot of innovation in America since 1913, a lot of it uh, uh, in the technology sector, some in the transportation sector, a lot in the biotech sector. That makes the dollar, that makes the U.S. valuable and there becomes demand around the world. The, the U.S. dollar becomes the, the safe currency. So as the U.S. borrows more money and issues more money, it's foreign countries are buying a lot of our debt as well because there's a demand and that keeps some deflationary pressure on the dollar right now. 
Yeah, and, and again, I'm not pushing for deflation because then there's a whole problem with people that are refusing now to buy things because they're waiting for the price to go right. down. And that that that's actually factoring in, in in Austrian economics is that you won't really ever see massive deflation because, or at least not uh, without some kind of external pressure that's causing it. Naturally, in a in a, in a free market, you're not going to see massive amounts of deflation because at some point people are going to start buying stuff again, and that brings the value up. So, I mean, there may be some natural level of inflation, but I think there will be kind of levels of inflation and deflation if it were allowed to be governed by market uh, determination uh, of market value as opposed to just the government printing out endless amounts of money. The problem is when you have a system of government or a system of, of currency and an economic system that is based on centrally planned decisions by politicians whose job it is to pander enough to get into office so that cronies that are at the top of the of the of the economic food chain and have a direct uh, pipeline into the bureaucratic system they've created because you see this constant revolving door of you know they were the head of this and now they're the, they're the head of this company or this lobby and now they're the head of this bureaucra- bureaucratic agency and then they go back to being the head of this lobby and so you have lobbyists and cronies who are essentially the people that truly run the country uh, who will now say, uh, here's a law that we've created and you can, and we've already got marketing people who have determined that this is the way to sell it to the public. And the pandering politician goes, okay, what are my talking points? Great. Uh, yeah, here, I'll sign this. Uh, just keep those donations coming. And they hand it off to the executive, which is this ever growing branch of Karens who write stuff down, telling everyone what to do. And that that's the system we have. It's a kleptocratic system of government that is designed to take from those with the least and give to those with the most and to order things upon those with the least so that those with the most can live in their, you know, we talk about uh, anarchy. The wealthiest people on this planet, the most powerful people on this planet live in anarchy. They do as they wish. They are egoists living in anarchy, imposing their state on literally everyone else. So, so what about situations where like, you know, again, property rights are important. And that was the initial basis back in the 1780s when they were first thinking of the the constitution that property rights was this uh, the most important right mm-hmm. what about issues like burglary or murder where your property rights are very directly being infringed how do you afford a, a police force for instance or, or a military if that's necessary well i think that i mean if you're talking about aggression obviously as libertarians we are against acts of aggression i think that when you look at the vast majority of crime because that's that's a there's a little bit of a bugaboo there where we're told well without the government uh who's going to protect you from robbery Well, when you take out the fact that most theft is actually civil asset forfeiture, so most acts of theft, if you included civil asset forfeiture, would the police take your property on suspicion of you having committed a crime without you actually having been tried and convicted? And then you have to go to court and sue for your own stuff back with money you don't have because they took everything from you? That actually is, if you take all of the private sector burglary combined and then put the civil asset forfeiture next to it, civil asset forfeiture strips out all other forms of private sector burglary. So again, without government, who who would keep you from robbing? Who would keep people from robbing you? Well, the short answer there is the government, it would the, the biggest robber would go away immediately. But but speaking to your problem about, you know, people as I call them private sector criminals, people that come in and break into your house and things like that. I think it would be up to those communities to determine what they wanted. I, I think there would still be some policing and security forces. The difference is when it's not imposed on you against your will by the state, you can have a much more equitable and fair and unharmful and unabusive system of how to get that. So whether, you know, smaller communities, rural communities decide to just have 
have you know mutual mesh uh, protection networks with maybe one person in charge of kind of keeping in tra- keeping track of stuff, or or whether you had in more urban areas you had actual competing pri- private security forces and things like that, whose only purpose was to just stop thieves, rapists, murderers, or to or it, or once they've done it to catch them and use some kind of a system of arbitration to determine whatever their punishment is, as opposed to what the vast majority of police work is right now, which is issuing citations for victimless stuff like your taillights out or your license is expired or your registration is expired or you don't have proof of insurance or, you know, now it's, you know, you, you were walking within six feet of your wife that you left your own apartment with, whatever it is. The vast majority of police work has nothing to do with protecting people. It is about enforcing arbitrary rules that are based on revenue collection. In that case, then the community, and I agree with you, the community would probably coalesce to figure out, okay, obviously we're going to punish murder. We're going to punish burglary. Mm -hmm. We're going to punish, we're going to figure out divorce and marriage and, 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 and there's arbitration for this. What about on a international scale? Like, is there any responsibility where, oh, we're worried Canada is going to invade us. We better have some sort of security for that and and that needs to be more centralized or does it in a in an evolved human society that we have now where we have learned long ago that the best way to achieve the things you want especially on a massive meta scale like that is through trade there's a reason why china hasn't attacked us and it's not because we have a very powerful navy or whatever else because ultimately you know when especially when you get into nuclear weapons whoever launches the nukes first probably wins and so given that the reason that they aren't attacking us is because we have trillions of dollars in trade between us if you look at where wars happen they happen in places where there's not much trade going on which is why they introduce embargoes before war it's not just to punish that country. It's also to divorce the financial ties between that country that wants to attack, whose government wants to attack, and the country who they want to attack. So again, this is another thing. Without government, who would stop people from invading us? Uh, without government, we would no longer be finan- we would no longer be robbed to finance the empire that is bombing and invading and destabilizing entire regions of the world. But what if someone wanted to do that to us? Well, first of all, trade is the most powerful weapon there. No one is going to want to upset the apple cart of trade. If we can get trade going, I think it was Bernie Sanders who says, you know, when you're not trading goods and services, you start trading, uh, you know, bombs and missiles or something like that. I'm not sure if it was Bernie, but someone said that. The more you can increase access to trade, the less likely anyone's going to want to fight anyway, at, at least not on that kind of a massive scale. Now, with that being said, you can, again, have services that are there in place in, in case someone wants to invade. And I, I, I also, you know, people say, well, if we get rid of the U.S. government and, and what if the Russian government wants to invade us? And, and to me, that's similar to saying, well, who can protect Amazon from Macy's? The reality is you are talking about a total disruption. If the United States, if, if the former United States, what used to be governed by the United States government, if the people there had determined they weren't even going to tolerate domestic governance, then no one is going to pretend to think that they're going to be able to impose some kind of foreign governance on this heavily armed group of obviously very ornery people who would love to trade with you instead. 
And also, I think the second question is, who would protect those governments against the uh, liberation services from the former United States that uh, citizens would be hiring to depose their tyrannical governments? But that's really, really deep stuff there. The bottom line into the answer of your question is that any kind of service we would need, including defense, is best gotten in a free market system through people who compete for your services. Look at our current government. Look at our current military. They've lost, I forget how many trillions of dollars they have lost and have absolutely no idea where it went. Well, of course they don't because they are a centrally planned, arbitrarily defined system of, of, of that has been a service that has been uh, uh, given to us at, at the expense of ourselves by government. Of course, it's going to be wasteful. Of course, it's going to be bloated. Of course, it's going to lead to terrible, inequitable, and harmful and abusive outcomes because it is a system that is based on violating self-ownership. Aggression against others is not just wrong from a moral standpoint. If from a utilitarian standpoint, it doesn't work. If I can take from you whenever I want, then I'm not going to be a good steward of what I have because I can simply take as much as I can from you. And you aren't going to be a good steward of what you have because you know that it can be taken from you at any time. And what is central planning? What is government other than a system by which a entity takes from everyone else as it sees fit? So what about something like, um, and you know, this is always the problem I have with, with government, and this is where it, it, it intersects with your philosophy, is that a lot of government programs seem to start with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let's back everybody's student loans. Yes. Of course, has led to tuitions rising Mm -hmm. faster than inflation for 60 years in a row. Um, And another one might be the FDA. Oh, let's, we got to make sure everyone, all these drugs are safe. But at the same time, to get a a drug past the FDA now costs $2 billion. So all we know, there's been drugs that have cured cancer that We'll never know about. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, so, but what do you do? Like if I bring that up, oh, let's get rid of the FDA. The average person will say, well, but then it's just chaos. Like we won't know if these drugs are safe or not, even though you could point out the FDA recalls 4,500 drugs a year. uh, uh, So it might not be safe at all, but what, what does happen? I think that the best way, what, what, what we have learned from the statists is that the best way to get your message across is to seize upon different scenarios. So for example, when an issue of police brutality happens, uh, George Floyd. George Floyd. Yeah, that was just uh, choked to death on on live on on you know for everyone to see in Minneapolis on TikTok, on t- yeah. Yeah, on TikTok and on Facebook. Uh, that you know we can seize on that to talk about the militarization of the police and the and the the abusive nature of the police state and and the need to in, in implement common sense police reforms and 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 police controls. The but when so for example when you're talking about the FDA we can look at situations in which the FDA has caused problems i was just talking about you know with the CDC people say well without the CDC who's going to dis- control it says right there it's the centers for disease control who is going to control diseases without the CDC well the answer is that they stopped people from controlling diseases so the answer is the people that the people who they stopped from controlling diseases will be the ones controlling disease. And the same thing with the FDA, the same thing with the Department of Education and everything else. I'm not a fan of just being a wide-eyed, abolish everything and it'll work itself out. You deal with people where they are. What I learned from you know my web design business, what I've learned from marketing libertarianism, you meet people where they are, both literally, if you can actually meet them where they are, their college campus, their proper, their community, wherever they live, or, but, or if nothing else, from their precepts, what are you worried about? What are the things that concern you? What are your ideas about what safety means, what health means, what uh, what do you want your future to look like? And then right, so from that, messaging out how libertarian solutions work better for them. 
So, so like, let's let's talk about drug development for a second. Mm -hmm. So, let's say I have an idea for a cancer drug, and I start to develop it. How, you know, on the one hand, you can say let's create a Yelp-style system so people will, you know, early adopters could inform later adopters, hey, this drug is safe and I right, got cured. Right, 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 right. So, so what what actually happens? Because then there's a lot of potential for manipulation and fraud uh, without someone in the middle. I think, but maybe not. Well, and. There's no way anyone who's trying to tell you sell you a utopian system where there's never going to be abuse or fraud or bad outcomes is either a liar or a fool or some combination of those things. I'm not going to pretend that getting rid of the FDA is going to end or the CDC or any of these things, but let's talk about the FDA, is going to stop you know, uh, uh, you know, lots of, of bad drugs from going on the market or anything like that. What I'm telling you is that bad drugs still go on the market. And because they use the cover of the FDA and the, and the cronies that they have uh, in, in, in government, they, you know, you have situations where drugs are created that the studies early on show that there were issues, but they manipulate the data and work with the people in the FDA to sign off on it, which then gives everyone the feeling, oh, well, it has the seal of approval, it must work. And then when those problems arise, they then lobby government to create these uh, trust funds to pay off the uh, the settlements that are now financed by the very taxpayers who were harmed by the drug in the first place. Uh, so is there still going to be abuse? Of course there's going to be abuse. There are some. There are abusive people. But the bottom line is when you remove the ability for abusive people to find sit to find positions of centralized power, now they're just like every other jerk trying to be abusive and you can stop them when they arise or you can deal with them after they've done it as opposed to allowing them to reach a point where not only are they the abuser, but they're the arbiter of what is or is not abuse in the first place. And if the abuse rises to a level of where someone needs to be paid off, they just rob you to pay for it. So that will end. So is there still abuse? Yes. But any system that is based on people voluntarily interacting Acting with each other is going to have far less abuse and 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 inequitable outcomes and harm and abuse as a result of that. Well, couldn't couldn't it lead to a system where whoever can finance the most propaganda is going to win? We have that so now. For, uh, yeah, you're right. We have that now <laughs> combined with the government. So, for instance, uh, you know, there's always issues about our privacy and the privacy of our data. Right. And uh, you know, Google, I guess, or whoever, instead of hiring lobbyists, they'll just do more propaganda, do more ads, whatever uh, is what is is what the outcome would be, rather than the government making laws that internet, okay, World Wide Web, okay. Uh, yeah, so, you were talking about lobbyists and yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so basically, you're saying there's still going to be propaganda, there's still going to be money thrown at the system to influence opinion, which is what happens now anyway. Could we be just overwhelmed by by like an oligarchy of you know, wealthy companies that just dominate uh, public opinion because of propaganda. We could absolutely return to, to the status quo that we have now, but I think that the likelihood of that happening is far less when things are decentralized. When control is centralized, when power is centralized, it becomes way easier to do all the things you just suggested because the, all you have to do is get to the top. You get to the top and you inject your ideas from there and basically they trickle down everywhere else. Whereas when you have a decentralized system, not necessarily a system with no hierarchy, but a decentralized system of power and influence, it's much harder for them to be able to do that. Will it still happen in pockets? Absolutely, but not to the same scale that it is now. They won't be able to actually own everything. You know, so you, it, this is similar to when people will say, well, without government, uh, you know, who will protect us from warlords? And I will, you know, it will end up being ruled over by warlords. I will say, you're absolutely right. We could absolutely return to the status quo we have now because we are ruled over 
by warlords. And if you don't believe me, uh, when, when the stadiums, when, when, when your warlords allow you to go back to a stadium to watch a football game and uh, you're at halftime and they, they roll out the big warlord flag and start singing the warlord song and the uh, fighter jets fly over you to remind you that they can kill everyone in the stadium if they want to. And everyone uh, cheers and applauds at how powerful the warlords are. And we thank the warlords for their various services to us. Uh, then now we are in a system where once again, you know, we, we, it's, it's a reminder we are ruled over by warlords. And they invite you to be proud of such a thing uh, to make you feel a positive feeling about it. But the reality is we are ruled over by warlords in a similar fashion. We are ruled over by oligarchs who use propaganda uh, that is financed by us through theft uh, to tell us what is right and what is wrong and what to do and what not to do. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's two directions I want to go here. Like one is in this current shutdown, what seems to be interesting. And again, I hate the fact that this shutdown has become politicized. Like if you're for lockdowns, it means you're a Democrat. If you're yeah, not for lockdowns, yeah. it means you're a Republican, right, right. which is, is sort of a ridiculous divide. It is. But uh, uh, it's amazing to me how so many people were eager to give up basic civil liberties. Like you can't leave your house uh, during this period. Why do you think smart, intelligent people were just like, okay, here's all my rights. Uh, we've got to protect uh, because if I, because if we don't all do this, there's going to be massive numbers of deaths. Uh, like, why do you think that happened? Be because of that, because they're scared. They're understandably scared. Let me give you a little background with me. I have an autoimmune disease. I definitely do not want to get this thing. You know, we're still, there's still different differences opinion as to how deadly it is or is not. And, 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 you know, how, uh, easy to spread it is or isn't. And unfortunately we're dealing with incomplete data because we're always playing behind the eight ball and trying to actually test people and see how many people actually even have it because there is a continued control of the ability to test. And, and, uh, there are actually at home tests that you can get that are, that you can buy that they take to, that they mail to you that will tell you if you have the disease or if you have the antibodies, which means you already had the disease and you can now go about and roam about the cat and as you see fit. Uh, and those are illegal. You know why? Because they don't report to the government. They don't care if you know. They'd rather, if they can't know, they'd rather no one know, including you. So all that to say, we don't know how serious it is. So when I first, when it first was obvious that the outbreak was here for real, and I've been kind of following it since I think the end of January and you know, kind of like, is this here? Are we going to have to worry about this? And I didn't realize they weren't letting people test for it at the time. But so once, it, you know, coming into March, uh, you know, when it started being obvious that it was, you know, a more serious thing uh, and that, you know, now they were starting to talk about shutting stuff down and couldn't have gatherings more than 100 people, I actually canceled going to the Libertarian Party of Virginia convention. I've been going to conventions pretty much every weekend uh, and it had just gotten back from the New Hampshire primaries where I had interacted with countless tens of thousands of people from all over the world. And, uh, and so in doing that, uh, I, I thought, you know what? We don't know how serious this thing is. Let's be safe and I'll cancel. You know, I might have it. I don't want to be a vector because apparently you can, you know, at that time we were, we were, the public was being reminded that you could spread it without even knowing and knowing you had it. And I thought, I don't want to get it from someone who doesn't know. I don't want to spread it without knowing. I'm going to stay home. And since then, I have largely been doing social distancing, reasonable precautions, you know, uh, only going out for groceries and, and to go on walks and, you know, go to the park and things like that. Still getting out, but, you know, uh, avoiding large groups and things like that because we still don't know how serious it is. And, 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 and that's the problem. So, but what I don't want to do, because I can afford to live that way, it is immoral for me to tell someone that because there is this virus that has a possibly two to three percent fatality rate, 
that you should not be able to feed your family and pay your rent and pay your bills. And I hope the government gives you another $1,200 check soon. But if not, oh, well, I don't know what to tell you. Stay home. Don't work. Don't do anything. I don't care. Just stop spreading the disease. Because I got news for you. The homelessness fatality rate is something around 8%. And homeless people are far more likely to get COVID-19 because they can't socially distance because they don't have a home and uh, they rely on others and they certainly can't self-quarantine. So they're far more likely to get it and they're probably more likely to die from it because they tend to also have more health issues. The types of economic conditions that are created by telling everyone stay home, do nothing will lead eventually. And it looks like things are starting to open up again, but they will lead eventually to mass poverty, mass homelessness at a time when the food kitchens are closed because of social distancing and self-quarantine and the food banks are closed. And so, I mean, I remember at the height of things and we're not in an impoverished area. There's some poverty, but not a lot. I remember going by a church and seeing the line of, of families. These are middle-class families and middle-class cars yeah. line up around the block to get meals. The, and not, not only that, I've been volunteering at some of those and the police have been shutting them down if there's not enough social distancing, which yep. is ridiculous because people were loading They're up on their food for the week. Starve. Yeah. And it was, it was like you say, it's every, there is no, this is not discriminating. Like it's there, everybody is exposed to the economic calamity here. Absolutely. And it's horrible. And so, okay. So thinking about this from, we've, we've been looking at this from a top down way. Like, so here's the philosophy. If we were to restart a country, here's how we would do it. But let's say you, you know, libertarians are, uh, you know, magically become elected and that's another, another issue, but let's mm -hmm. say you were in charge. Yep. What would you start doing? to move things in this direction? Top priorities are harm reduction. And that's sort of across the board with libertarians, specific, especially anarchists, but really libertarians of all stripes. Let's stop the harm. If you look at it like how a doctor would look at the patient, if, they're, if you're trying to tape up a wound while someone's actively being stabbed, you would probably say, hey, let's stop the stabbing and then we can start dealing with the wounds. And you know we can triage them, but let's stop additional wounds from being created. Stop the harm. So as for, so for example, if Joe Jorgensen and I were elected president and vice president, there are a lot of executive actions she could take before we even go to the legislature. So things like ending the wars, the use of authorization of military force has for since 9-11 allowed the president uh, to declare, not declare war, but basically go to war with anyone they want to uh, based on the, the overall uh, idea of stopping terrorism. She could simply de decide that that threat was no longer relevant and to bring those troops home. Yeah, and you, you know the the la, you know when the last legally declared war was was uh, 1941. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was the World War II because yeah. uh, Korea was just a conflict, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Korea, Vietnam, everything. Yeah, yeah. So the last time war was declared was shortly after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and and so just to put that in perspective, but because of that, the the I guess silver lining of that is because the uh, uh, the the legislature has completely derelicted their duty to the executive. The executive can say war's over, bring the troops home, end the wars. Okay, and and the blowback from those wars, because now, why would you want to join a a group to fight against a military that has left? They're gone. They're not fighting us anymore. And they're, and they're actually apologizing and saying, now we want to trade with you. We want to get past this together. That's going to be a massive, uh, a depressing factor for uh, terrorist recruitment. That and the CIA no longer creating and, and, and funding and, and training terrorist groups would also help. Uh, so ending that, ending the war on drugs, release all of the criminals from the, from the release all of the 
of the 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 uh, victims of the war on drugs, all of the the uh, uh, people that are there for victimless crimes, drug crimes, uh, sex work crimes, ending the war on sex work, uh, ending the war on migrants, uh, freeing the people from the cages, ending the cages uh, and and camps on the border, allowing people to come into the country without having to have their papers. Which, by the way, is how the founders intended. For the first hundred years of the existence of the United States of America, we were subjected to, or we are allowed to have, unlimited, unregulated migrate, unregulated migration into and out of the country. And none of the calamities that the nativists and the bordertarians and so forth are telling us would happen, happened. Because people who come for peaceful reasons, perfectly fine. There's no reason to do that. Migration controls are a violation of your right to host, hire, or house whomever you wish on your property or to travel to properties where you are welcome. They have no business doing that. You should not have to have papers to go where you are welcome. And so we would end that. Um, we would do lots. We would we would work with, we would put a lot of uh, uh, top-down pressure on states to remove the regulatory burdens like occupational licensing and things like that that make it basically criminalize people trying to get ahead from poverty. So we would do things like that. That would be our focus is harm reduction through executive actions that would uh, uh, that would reduce that harm. The next step would be legislative. Now, more than likely, if we got elected we, to the presidency, we'd also probably have a few libertarians in Congress too, but we'd also probably be dealing with an overwhelming Republican majority. That's where the bully pulpit comes in. So I would, as vice president, and, and, and President Jorgensen would as well, with her bully pulpit, we would draw a clear line in the sand. On one side of that line would be us and those of us who are working to remove the boot of, from the neck of the people who are working to find solutions to the problems that are often either created made worse or created and made worse by government. And on the other side of that line would be the people who wish to keep that boot on the neck of the people and cause unnecessary, needless harm for no other reason than to preserve their power. And so, so, uh, well, actually, this is a side question, but what other licensing do you disagree with? I mean, uh, let's say it's all of it, but what's ridiculous? So, so most people know about medical and law, law and police. They don't really know that Everybody who works in a nail salon is licensed, which is ridiculous. But what other things are ridiculous? I think if I had to pick one, the most ridiculous, hair braiding. <laughs> in most states, you need to have a cosmetology license to braid hair for and a living. I mean, be, because they have determined that that's cosmetology. Even though you're not cutting anything, you're not penetrating anything, you're having minimal touching you're literally just braiding someone's hair and and getting compensation for it. If you want to braid hair for compensation, and so the vast majority of hair braiders are doing it illegally, which means they risk having their lives ruined by the state for doing something and not wanting to give the government tens of thousands of dollars over and above taxes because they're not just saying, you know, this is your tax. You then have to pay taxes on the part that they let you keep. Right. You have to spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and spend a year or more in school, which is a whole other racket, cosmetology school, specific to these ridiculous things. And, and, and I mean, you want to talk about criminalizing trying to get out of poverty. That is the most absurd version. Food service. The idea that if I want to have someone over and cook for them, that's fine. But if, if they want to give me five bucks for it, nope, we got a problem here. This is unsafe and could potentially cause massive death. That's another perfect example. Uh, you know, uh, uh, mowing the lawn. You need a license to mow the lawn. Why? Really? What do you think? You I need a license to mow the lawn? The, you need a business license to mow the lawn. 
You need a business license to do any kind of business, really. And why is that? This isn't a license of mastery. This isn't a license saying that you will have met whatever requirements are to be a doctor. This is, you have to pay for permission to even do this thing and then pay taxes on whatever we, we you know, whatever you actually made from doing it. Why? What about like a pilot's license? Like, obviously I wouldn't want to get in a plane with someone who didn't have, I didn't know for a fact had nine, you know, a thousand hours of flying time and so on. Well, again, if we were looking at purely a free market way of doing it, it would be a system of apprenticeship. If you want to be a pilot in any kind of self-respecting airline, then you have to study under pilots. You have to learn, do everything you would have to do to get a pilot's license, go to pilot school and everything else. But why do you need to pay the government for permission? If you have demonstrated that you have done that thing, then what is the point of then paying the government for permission? You're paying taxes. You're you are doing everything else. The the uh, you know the these uh, from my understanding is that the standards that these airlines have are way higher than FAA standards for for you know ongoing education and, and training and things like that. Why is the government exal- involved except to have one other way to rob you to skim from the top? There's no good reason for it. Now, with that said. If we're looking at sort of a compromise, let's be reasonable, more minarchist way of looking at it. Fine, pilots, uh, uh, doctors, lawyers, things like that, to have, you know, to people that are in these, you know, very high, you know, uh, uh, paramedics, things like that, that they have to have a license. Again, I don't see the reason why the person's gone to school, they know how to do it, why you're then having to pay the government. Fine, okay, great. For that stuff, fine. Mowing the lawn, braiding hair, making tacos and selling them out of your truck or whatever like who cares so okay so now let's say we the the government starts to move in this direction and also you know libertarian philosophy taxes go way down possibly to zero or as close to zero as possible Mm -hmm. but every state government every city government the u.s government now has all this debt how would the government start to raise money to pay down the debt like what would you you'd have to start selling off things or providing other services that you charge for what would you sell off like how again going bottom up instead of top down like what would you do to rectify the economy well there are school two schools of thought on this uh the i guess the purely uh libertarian ethos would be that uh government debt is illegitimate because the government was only making promises based on theft which according to the government's own concepts of contract law makes it an illegitimate contract if I, if I have a contract with you that is based on, on my receiving stolen property, it is an illegitimate concept. Uh, and so that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, well, that might be true, but if you do it, it'll destroy the economy and that remains to be seen. But, you know, let's say that, that there is a way of doing it. The government sits on tens of trillions of dollars in assets for no other reason than to simply sit on it and control it. Well, they could sell that. They could uh, uh, they could lease it out. They could do all sorts of things to raise revenue while also disbanding disbanding their claimed ownership of of property and resources and reserves and things like that. And in doing so, uh, they would be able to pay off that debt. But again, I think there's a whole conversation to be had about you know a a contract, which is what debt is, a form of a contract that is based on the promise of of uh, you know getting enough stolen uh, stolen revenue to be able to pay it. No, but, but I love this idea of, of privatizing a lot of these federal assets. So mm-hmm. let's looking at it at the state level, for instance, let's look at New York, which has, I don't know, something like 120 billion in debt. The SUNY school system, which is hospitals, schools, land, all these things you could, you could sell. There's the highway system you could sell, the federal government could sell, or the state governments could sell. What, what are the, what are some of the assets that you would start selling? 
Uh, infrastructure and roads is a huge one because there would be firms that would be more than happy to get involved in using advertising and various other ways to raise revenue. You've got a captive audience on your roads. Advertising, uh, you could Congestive have- pricing. What's that? Congestive pricing, so you charge more when there's when there's higher traffic. Yeah, you could do all of those things. And people get scared. They'll go, well, I don't want to have to pay a toll. Well, you're paying a toll every time you pay taxes, every time you pay your license fee. All of that stuff is going towards that stuff. You would be paying, but it would be a lot more efficient because there would be competing providers trying to become the the stewards of those of those roads who would be providing those services in a more uh, efficient and cost effective way because they aren't also funding a bunch of political stuff that has nothing to do with those roads. So that would be one. And selling off or leasing off those rights would be a great way to to uh, raise revenue. Um, uh, I, there was talk about, uh, using, uh, um, uh, someone had mentioned like, uh, naming rights and things like that. So that you could have, you know, a park that's presenting you to you by whatever company or by whatever interest group or whatever. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different things, but the bottom line is that when you remove government from it and when you let the market take care of it, again, it does not guarantee that there's never going to be a problem. That that's something. You know, often, when we talk about creating entirely new systems of 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 organization of societies, we tend to get into this utopian thing. It'll solve everything. No, it won't solve everything. It will solve much of the problems. Things will be much better. There will be much more equitable solutions because all of the decision makers are people working voluntarily. At no point can I point a gun at anyone and say you have to do it my way. Which means my idea has to be sellable. It has to be an idea that makes sense to everyone else involved. Oh, what about currency? No, that's we talked about that before. A free market system of banking, uh, competing currencies, allowing the market to make the determination of what currencies are needed. And, you know, you would probably end up with a situation where there are many, many, many currencies, a handful of which are really the main ones being used. And there may only be two or three that become the real main ones being used. And there would be some level of, uh, uh, you know, some level of, um, you know, a, an exchange, a common exchange rate. So it does get confusing and things like that. But the bottom line is, again, if your currency is being issued by someone who doesn't want to lose you to their competitor, now you're looking at someone who's trying to give you the most value for that money because they get a piece every time you use it. So that's another perfect example, as opposed to what we have now, which is currency that is issued by government precisely for the only reason that they can print out endless amounts of it, lend it to themselves, and use it to spend on political purposes, which then reduces the value of your currency. So, okay, so now turning to the question of electability, like everything you say makes so much sense. And I think a lot of people lean in these directions and particularly in terms of, you know, all the all the licensing, all the educational stuff really is a theft from the poor, mm-hmm. as, as you would put it. Why can't why can't the libertarians get more votes? What the hell's going on here? Like I would wish I hope you were to get elected and, and some of these ideas come through, but the odds are essentially zero. So what what what's your goal personally and, and how can how can you further that goal? Well, let's look at the problem, right? So for the past 49 years, which is how long the Libertarian Party has been around, we have won zero federal or statewide elections. No president, no vice president, no senator, congressman, no governor, attorney general, nothing like that. Uh, We've won some state legislative stuff and we've won some, we've won a lot of local elections and things like that, but we haven't won big. And we've been around for quite a while. Here's the problem. Uh, ballot access is a big problem. A lot of people are under the misapprehension that if you want to run for office uh, as a third party, 
You just show up and say, hey, my name's Spike Cohen. I'm running for vice president with the Libertarian Party. I'd like to be on that ballot there. And they go, oh, that's great. That'll be some minimal filing fee. Nope. Uh, it, it's from state to state. But uh, in most states, you have to get thousands of signatures and spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in addition to what you spent to get all those signatures. Because you got to pay people to go out and collect signatures unless you can find uh, enough volunteers to do so. In New York State, it's 130,000 signatures you have to get, which really means that you have to get more like double that because the first thing that the State Board of Elections, which is run by Democrats and Republicans, uh, do is they find every possible way to disqualify your your signatures. So really, you got to get like a quarter of a million signatures to be able to just get on the ballot. That places us at such a massive disadvantage because so much of our funds and our time is spent just getting on the ballot in the first place. Whereas Republicans and Democrats, they just show up on election day. They can go and campaign and whatever else. When they pick their nominees, they simply waltz into the election office and go, here's our nominee. Here's our Republican nominee and here's our Democratic nominee. And they go, that's great. Here's your minimum filing fee for that. And that's it. They don't have to do all the signature stuff because they're Republicans and Democrats. The rest of us have to do all that stuff. And so that puts us at a massive disadvantage right there. The other disadvantage is we're pushing for a system that isn't cronyism. And our system is funded by cronyism. So it's hard for us to get tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to be able to compete with the people who are promising to continue cronyism and get tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. This next presidential election, they're estimating, I think it was $2 billion dollars that's going to be spent on the presidential election when all things are said and done. Yeah, on each side, I think. Yeah, something think like that. Yeah, I, I remember two billion. I don't remember. It might have been each side. Billions of dollars that are being spent, and the and the and the the corporate the entities that the the crony, you know, mega multinational mega corps conglomerates who are more than happy, who also control the media too, uh, because most of our media is run by like a handful of multinational companies, so they control what we are told every single day. Most of these companies would be more than happy to spend those billions to get the tens of trillions that they get in return on investment. And then we show up and go, hey, guys, we'd like to run, too, in dismantling all this. All this is gone. All this tens of trillions you get, none of it. Now you have to compete on a free market. We don't get any of that money. They're not going to give us that money. So we rely on small donations. So, you know, or, and I shouldn't say small. I mean, we get thousands of dollars from some, some people. Some people give us six figures, whatever. But, you know, we rely on being able to raise millions of dollars, maybe. Um, and so that puts us at a disadvantage. And, and a good bit of that millions and of all of our activist time and effort is spent on just even getting on the ballot in the first place. So that is really the biggest obstacle that we have. The next obstacle that we have is the trap that we fall into every, every single cycle, which is this. As I was saying, the cronies own the media and the media come up to us and go, if you give us the kind of candidate that we want and show up and give the kind of interviews we want them to give and answer the questions the way we'd like them to, this time we'll give you a seat at the table. This time, Charlie Brown will let you kick that football. And every single time we show up in good faith and every single time they do the same thing to us, no matter how well we answer the questions, no matter how many gotcha interviews that they do, they wait for that one time that we slip up. That one time that any human being would possibly not be perfect in their ability to answer a series of questions coming out of nowhere. And they go, and when you make that slip, they go, aha, he didn't even know where Aleppo is. He has no idea what Aleppo is. You can't take these people seriously. You can't vote third party. They're a bunch of fools. Just keep voting Republican and Democrat. That's where it's at. 
so so but but that happens too to the democrats and republicans like uh, what, what's an example where a libertarian was being interviewed by i don't know good morning america or something and and blew up because they didn't answer a question correctly aleppo so uh, uh gary johnson that's what i was talking about gary johnson in 20 i'm sorry i, I was maybe being a libertarian obscure no, no, there that's, so that's in, good. in 2016 gary johnson he did his media tour and everywhere he went they asked him gotcha question after gotcha question after gotcha question and he handled it very well he handled it you know fairly well because he's a libertarian and he knows how to answer questions and so he was on msnbc i believe it was msnbc and he had if you if you watch the whole interview he was sitting there in what looked like an interrogation circle and he's got people just firing questions at him he had like four people just blasting him with questions and finally they go what about aleppo now depending on who you ask he either didn't know what aleppo was which is aleppo syria which at the time was being bombed and there was all this terrible stuff happening or he may have misunderstood what they said where you know what about aleppo and he thought they were saying a aleppo and he's like well what is a aleppo or something what regardless he made a human error and he said i'm sorry what's aleppo and they went what's aleppo he said, yeah, what's Aleppo? And they said, Aleppo is the whatever in Syria where the bombing's happening. And he gave a great answer. He talked about non-interventionism. He talked about how we're, you know, contributing to the problem or maybe even creating the problem, how the wars need to end and we bring the troops home. That's not the part you heard. What you heard was, what is Aleppo? And they kept showing that over and over again. This moron doesn't even know what Aleppo is. How on earth can we trust him in foreign policy if he doesn't even know what Aleppo is? I would have dared them to out of the blue ass Donald Trump about Aleppo. Yeah. I would like someone right now to ask Joe Biden about Aleppo and see where yeah. you go with that. I would love to, I, and tape that 30 seconds of amazingness after you ask him like a random obscure question about a foreign country. Um, but we are met, we have to meet a different standard. And the problem is it's because we fall into their trap. Instead of subverting media, instead of using our way of reaching out to people, using social media. And when we do get those media interviews, use it to seize the narrative. Use it to make it us challenging them, force the Republicrats and their crony media to defend the system they've created to put us, that has put us in the situation we're in. Why are we defending anything? We're proposing scrapping or dismantling or at least reforming the system that we all agree needs major, major changes. They're proposing basically doubling down on the same thing, just going back and forth between the same Republicrats who caused, caused this problem in the first place. So put them on the defensive, seize the narrative, and uh, and fight for, for more fair ballot access. And eventually we will be able to win, but it will, it will require being bold. It will requi require seizing the narrative, and it will require not playing with their uh, on their terms and with their rules. So it seems like there's two strategies that might work. One is installing someone as your presidential nominee, someone who's already well-known, famous, or already in politics, you know, like, you know, someone like a Mark Cuban, who's alluded to running for president on a third party. I don't know if he's a libertarian or not, but mm -hmm. you know, someone like that with that kind of name recognition. And, and I, I don't know if you've ever really done that. I mean, maybe the closest is like Harry Brown, who's written some best-selling books, but right. Uh, I, I don't know if you've thought about it further, you meaning the party. I mean, I'm, I know there's always been talk about we need Drew Carey, we need Vince Vaughn, we need uh, Kurt Russell uh, has been named, um, uh, Mark Cuban, although I'm not sure how libertarian Mark Cuban is. I know he has some libertarian leanings, but I don't know how libertarian he is. My thing is this, if you're a famous libertarian and you want to run, that's great. I want to make sure you're a libertarian. 
and and I don't not doing like a purity test. You have to be as libertarian as me, but let's look at the basics of the libertarian platform. Do you agree with the vast majority of this, at least, if not all of it? Because if so, then we we're, we're going somewhere. I think unfortunately we have often fallen into the idea that if we get an elected official who agrees with a lot of it, then we're okay. The problem is we're already behind the eight ball with our activists where we've told the activists, hey, you guys are doing a great job building up this party, but we're never going to put you at the top because you're not legitimate. We need this person here. And this person here, they're not really that libertarian, but they are famous. So we're going to need them. You're not really legitimate. And so we're telling our activists, the people who are actually on the ground doing this, that they are fools for trying to work their way up the party because we don't want them. They're not legitimate. We need this guy here. And, 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 and we're signaling to everyone else the same thing, that we are essentially a retirement center for uh, you know, Republican politicians who want to take one last quixotic tilt at the old windmill before you know, retiring off into being a contributor for you know, Meet the Press or whatever. What, what about this guy, uh, this congressman, Justin, uh, I don't know how to say his last name. Amash. Amash. Yeah, Amash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was he decent or was he a possibility? He was one of, he's one of the more libertarian uh, congressmen in Congress. Uh, I am glad that Justin Amash entered the uh, entered the Libertarian Party. I am glad that for the first time ever, even if it's only for a few months, uh, that the Libertarian Party has its first uh, member of, the, of of Congress, a federal Congress. I hope that he runs for uh, re-election. And uh, if he does, we will support him 100%. And I hope he sticks around. I definitely had some concerns about him coming in. Not just that he came in, but the way he came in. He came in like a matter of weeks before the nomination. And there was this sort of feeling of almost like there was this air of inevitability that we simply had to pick him because he's just an Amash. And there was a lot of pushback against that, where we mm -hmm. said, hey, listen, we're all happy you're here. And if you had jumped in the race a year ago or six months ago, we'd be having a completely different conversation here. Because even though he wasn't 100% libertarian, we don't really like his positions on uh, immigration and some of his positions on abortion are a little cringy, but largely speaking, very libertarian, elected official, well-known for resisting Trump even when he was within his own party. That's a conversation we could have had if you entered earlier. There was a lot of concern about the way that he entered. And I think he felt some of that pushback. And that was, I think that that and some of the uncertainties related to, you know, the, the way that the convention was going to be held, although we ended up doing it exactly how we said we were going to do, uh, he, he decided not to run. Uh, but I think a big part of why he decided not to run was in speaking with delegates. I think he saw that a lot of people were saying, hey, listen, we love you. This was not the way to do it. Um, and, 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 and so, so we, I hope he sticks around. I, he's made every indication that he's going to stick around. He's made every indication, uh, that he wants to help grow the party. That's all great stuff. I hope he tries to run for reelection for a seat. We will support him hundred percent in 2024. If he comes back and says he wants to want, run for president, that will be a completely different conversation. I'm not going to promise I would support him, but I will just say it'll be a completely different conversation. You are now someone who's been in the party. You've helped to grow the party. You've maybe even run for reelection and been a congressman in the party. Totally different conversation than the way that it ended up happening unfolding here so so given given the hurdles that the party faces what about people like you and joe jorgensen um kind of rise up through one of the republicans or democrats you, you'll be a congressman and a senator and you you know bring your philosophy in in a way that is unfortunately for better or for worse more accepted by the american people right now so are you saying like instead of trying to make our own party joining the republican party or the democrat party and trying to change it from the inside 
Yeah, which which does happen. I mean, these parties have shifted over the century. They they have shifted, but typically they shift along statist lines. So they will shift towards different schools of how the government should be managing things. Because again, that's what the system feeds into. That's what all of the signals, all of the price signals within government are more are more government and 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 how to how to get achieve more government for the sake of more government because it is a system they've created for their benefit. Um there has been some attempts with the Republican leader, Liberty Coalition, for example, to bring libertarians into the Republican Party and to try to make the Republican Party more libertarian. Um, that has resulted in politicians like Rand Paul, who came in on some incredibly amazing promises and who has voted for a lot of stuff that he said he'd never vote for and uh, who has uh, done a lot of vouching for Donald Trump on libertarian terms for things that are explicitly anti-libertarian and anti-people. But, but if we're talking specifically libertarianism, they go against what we believe. And so it's, it's a major problem that, you know, uh, what ends up happening is instead of us changing the, the Republican Party, the Republican Party uses us to vouch for them to libertarians while doing almost nothing in terms of what we would actually like. Government continues to grow. Uh, surveillance programs continue to get worse. Uh, you know, uh, the wars continue to go on and on and on. And you have someone like a Rand Paul who is presented as a libertarian who says, you know, this is better than the Democrats, guys. And it's just, that's not, it's, they change us from the inside. We don't change them from the inside. The institutional inertia and the entire structure and purpose behind what they've built uh, is not conducive to libertarianism. We have to create something outside of it, and then we have to spread that to the masses in a way that subverts the system and the machine that's been set up. So, so look, this has been great. You explained a lot of things to me that I wasn't fully, that I didn't fully comprehend or understand, and and I I understand a lot more now. What's next for you? So you're gonna do. You're gonna obviously hope to. I, I hope you win the vice presidency. I hope you're you're your vice president Spike Cohen. And let's say you don't get elected. Okay. What's what's next? If well, let's say so. A lot of times people will say, well, what's the point if if you're almost likely not to get elected? And the point is, obviously, we're going to fight to try to get elected. If we do not, by some chance, we do not get elected, uh, the goal is to try to get as many new people exposed to the message, bring as many new members into the party, earn as many votes as we can, both for ourselves and for down ballot races, for the, the people running for the, the, you know, the, the statewide and the federal races and the local and regional races, to more, much more easily winnable races to get those wins. But also the higher of a vote uh, count the uh, presidential race get, uh, presidential ticket gets, the more there are a number of states that will give you immediate ballot access if you get over a certain amount. So get as many votes as we possibly can to bring as many people into the party and into the movement and to have them influenced by the prevailing culture of libertarianism. To hopefully we make, make enough of, a big enough of a splash to score 15% or more in two uh, uh, reputable opinion polls, which will uh, land us on the uh, debate. Because who would like, you know, you've got these two 70-something uh, accused rapists, credibly accused rapists, who are both responsible for massive amounts of harm done by government, endless number of, countless number of people killed overseas, countless number of people uh, put in cages for victimless crimes here. What better person to put in front of them than, you know, a, an accomplished 
a, a, a strong woman who has not been accused of rape and hasn't murdered anyone or, or put anyone in a cage. Uh, and uh, who who more would you like to have debating uh, Mike Pence and whomever Joe Biden picks uh, than me? And so that we, we think that'll help BSL. Whatever we can get in terms of bringing more people in and getting the message out more will be a victory to that extent because we know that it will help us more in the future and we know that it will bring, it'll get more immediate victories at lower levels. And again, we will compete all the way to the end. The other part of your question, if we do not get elected, what happens? I'm going to continue doing what I was going to do whether I get elected or not. Go around the country and spread the message of libertarianism. Knock on doors in housing projects and marginalized communities. Hand out pamphlets and talk to small and large groups in college campuses. Talk to the people that are being the most acutely affected by government and the people who are also potentially the future for changing things. The youth. The, the people that are marginalized who want to try to build themselves up and to talk to any other groups, to go to pride rallies, to talk to the people who feel it the most. Talk to everyone, but especially the people who feel it the most and spread a message of liberty. You own yourself, you own your life, you own your labor, you own your body, and you own your property. And we will stand with you and fight against anyone who would try to take those things from you. Is there any situation in American history, and and by the way, I want to be respectful of your time. This will be this is this is closing it up. Yeah. Is there any situation where maybe this philosophy would not have worked? Like let's let's for instance take even slavery or civil rights later or entrance into World War II or mm -hmm. you know, and again, it, it, you can also argue for isolationism there, but is there any situation where this philosophy would have limited people? Like like maybe we do need government to enforce um you know, integration or, or, you know, no slavery or civil rights and, and these other issues. I personally would not say so. And again, I'm not going to speak on behalf of every libertarian or anything else, but for example, slavery was a system enforced by government. So if you were a slave, the only way that slave masters were able to keep large numbers of people in check it wasn't just their private overseers, which eventually became a, a, a you know, a public service from the States. It was the fact that if they left, someone was going to just pick them up. They had federal slavery enforcers who would come in and basically force them to go back, state and federal slavery enforcers that would force them to go back. Those people in and of themselves could not have kept those slaves on the plantation if they weren't able to externalize the cost of enforcement to everyone else. So no, I would say no. Uh, uh, integration. Uh, you had a system where the government forced people to segregate. So even if I, if I had moved to the South and said, I'm not seeing any other integrated businesses here. I got a great idea because I'm certain that some of these people would love to actually be able to integrate. I'm going to open up Spike Cohen's integrated uh, pool hall or whatever. I couldn't. It's against the law. Even and 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 integration could have happened simply by allowing the market, allowing people to provide that. And even if at the time the vast majority of people would have said that's disgusting, I don't want to be around and no, any black person. Over time. Over far and far less time than it took the way that they did it, over a far earlier period of time, normalization would have occurred. So that long before the 1960s, and, and after countless police beatings and cagings and everything else, far before the 1960s, you would have had forced integration. But again, if you didn't have the government enforcement before that, you wouldn't have had the slavery. So, I mean, no, I, I would argue that any time that you centralize power and control, you maximize corruption, you maximize harm, you maximize bad, arbitrary, centrally planned decisions, you maximize poor stewardship and everything else. And the more you decentralize it, the more you minimize that. It doesn't make it go away, but it makes it better.
Well, uh, again, future Vice President-elect Spike <laughs> Cohen, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I reached out to you on, on Twitter. You were, you were gracious to respond. I do think podcasts are a great way to campaign. So oh, I yes. Can yes. congratulate you for doing this. Thank you. And uh, hopefully you, you'll come on again. There's, um, I'm, certain, I'm sure there's going to be more questions during, during the election or afterwards, mm -hmm. and I'd love to have you on as a, a guest again. And uh, thank you, and and good luck. Uh, by the way, also you're the the second Jewish person ever to be on a national ticket. Am I correct? Yeah, I knew I wasn't the first because of Joe Lieberman. Am I the second? I believe you're the second. I can't think of any other. I mean, certainly not on the Democrats and Republicans, and and then I guess Mazel Tov to me. I mean, well, Jill yes. Jill Stein, I believe, is Jewish, and she ran for president. I, I don't know the stat yeah, there. Okay. I believe I might be the second uh, uh, Jewish. I'm definitely the first Jewish millennial because I'm the first millennial. Period. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure on the Jewish thing. I I think you might be right. I, I really don't want to say for certain, but I, I'm one of a very small handful of Jews who have run for office. I want to say if you if you guys want to find out more uh, about about us and our campaign and our issues and 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 how you can hopefully contribute or volunteer, go to joj2020.com. Uh, I will have a page on there soon. Again, we've been running mates for all of three days now. And so uh, we're still you working. You guys get on. along? Yeah, we get along great. We actually had an awesome conversation uh, yesterday. We get along amazingly. Uh, and so joj2020.com. J-O-J, so Joe Jorgensen, joj2020.com. Uh, and all the information is there, how you can donate, how you can volunteer, find out about uh, Joe. In a, in a couple more days, you'll be able to find out about me because my page will be on there. Uh, my personal uh, uh, social media is on Twitter, at Real Spike Cohen, uh, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash literally Spike Cohen, or uh, if you're searching in the Facebook search bar, Spike Cohen, your next VP. Excellent. Well, Spike and pretty soon I'll have to say VP Spike or, or Mr. VP. Mr. Mr. Uh, Vice President Spike. Yeah. Yes. Good good luck. Uh Thank you, sir. and um reduce my taxes for me once you once you get in there or, or take them away completely. And you know, good congratulations on on you know getting the VP nomination of a major political party. That's great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too.